2: Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at HomeDepot.com.
3: Guess what, Will? What's that, Mango? Time for a pop quiz. <laughs> so I want to read you a line from a story I read this week and have you guess what it's about.
4: All right, go for it.
3: So here goes. Uh, this is from the Chicago Tribune's Rex Hupke and he writes, We are so far gone, so consumed by political correctness, that unwanted and potentially dangerous outsiders are poised to put one of our most cherished institutions at risk. Any ideas what he's talking about?
4: I kind of don't want to (laughs) say.
3: He's talking about cats. (laughs) (laughs) Or more specifically, he's talking about how cats, or non-dogs as he calls them, got to make an appearance at Westminster's dog
4: show this year. Wow. So they were actually – I don't believe this. This got to be an Onion story. <laughs>
3: yeah, it's true. that There were actually 40 designer breeds like Toygers and Bengals all displayed at the Meet the Breeds event a few days before the dog show, which, of course, caused some commotion from purists. And
4: I can imagine.
3: In fact, an AKC spokeswoman had to defend the inclusion, and she clarified it for a Washington Post reporter by saying – Cats are pets too. But they're not dogs. <laughs> that's
4: just not that's not the
3: point. <laughs> yeah, but the, the whole thing made me realize I know nothing about America's greatest dog show. And and I started wondering, how did dog shows get their start? And why are they so important to breeders? And most importantly, are there ways for an outsider to game a dog show? Let's dive in.
4: Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mangesh Hatikater. And behind that soundproof glass wearing the most stylish top hat I think I've ever seen is our (laughs) friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. And today we're going to be talking dog shows. Not just how they got started, but how you can try to game them. Uh, but before we dive in, I, I wanted to just thank our listeners again for all the fun emails and messages we're getting and voice messages on our hotline. And there was one that came in that was talking about our weird college classes episode we did just mm-hmm. a few weeks ago. And I thought this was pretty great. It's from Catherine in Grapevine, Texas. And it says, I just finished your podcast about college classes. You mentioned a wine appreciation class in Ohio, and I had to tell you it isn't the only one. Around a decade ago, my brother took a course like that at the University of Houston, and my parents weren't happy, and thought it would be a total joke. Instead, he turned out to be really good at tasting and rating the wine, where he went on to take a course and and study to become a sommelier. I love that. He went on to judge for the wine show for the Texas Rodeo, which I didn't know that existed. (laughs) Last year alone, it included 2,800 entries from approximately 20 different countries, including Australia, Austria, France, Italy, Japan, Peru, South Africa, and Spain. I guess some of those weird random classes can really pay off. Uh, this is pretty great. So thank you so much, Catherine, for, uh, for sending this in. I guess these classes can lead to big things. Definitely. But you guys keep the uh, emails coming, part-time genius at HowStuffWorks.com, or you can call us on our 24/7 fact hotline one eight four four PT Genius. It is still 24/7, right? Mm-hmm, 24/7. That's excellent. All right, <laughs> all right. On to our main topic. You know, Mango. I know you and I both had dogs growing up, and and my family just got a new pup. Yeah, Noodles. That's right, Noodles Pearson getting the shout out on today's program. But you know, before we were coming on for the show, you were telling me that you were pretty dog obsessed as a kid. Yeah, I mean,
3: I. I've always loved dogs, but in second or third grade, I I watched this PBS series with my mom called All Things Bright and Beautiful, which is about this country veterinarian named James Harriet. And watching it convinced me I needed to be a vet. Like he drove around the country in this classic old car and he had this dog riding shotgun and he helped animals. So it all seemed kind of lovely and ideal to me. And this was maybe a year or two before we got a dog. In fact, I'm not sure if I ever told you this, but my my school had this encyclopedia of dog breeds that I found hidden in the back corner somewhere, and I totally monopolized it. Like, I'd return it and then immediately sign it out again, and I don't even know why. I mean, maybe it was because I figured, like, a good vet needed to start studying dog breeds early, but... You know, at a certain point after like five or six weeks of my name being the only one on the library card, the librarian gently took me aside and let me know I should probably let someone else check it out. Like she was very sweet about it.
4: Library cards. (laughs) I haven't thought – so like the things in the back of the books, haven't Mm -hmm. thought about that in a long time. All right. Well, you know, since today's episode is all about dog shows, I'm curious to hear from you. Like, have you ever gone to a dog show?
3: No, I mean, that's what's funny is that as obsessed as I was and as much as I love dogs, I've always thought dog shows were next level, like just a step too far.
4: And obviously that idea has certainly been helped by things like Best in Show, which is an hysterical movie, but it certainly influences the way we think about dog shows, too.
3: Yeah. And I don't love the pageantry and it's so ostentatious. And So you know that writer Gia Tolentino, who I love? She wrote this story about the Westminster dog show for The New Yorker. And in the opening scene, this is the scene she walks into. She sees a tall, fluffy dog strode genially around the room. I'm going to need you to stay away from my setup, one handler hissed at another as they power walked toward the staging area wearing sequin-accented suits. Like, clearly, Best in Show didn't have to try that hard to mock some of what goes on.
4: Wow, that's crazy. And and speaking of Best in Show, I do remember reading, and this is really no shock to me, but that none of the dog shows would let Christopher Guest film his mockumentary there. Mm-hmm. So he, he basically had to build and recreate a massive dog show just for the movie. <laughs> and it's such a great movie. But let's get back on track here, because, you know, Noodles has a dog show to win, so we need to figure <laughs> out how to game one. So before we start talking about how to run the tables, you know, why don't you walk us through a a quick history of dog shows. You you had the honor of being assigned to looking up the history of dog shows. It's all yours. <laughs> yeah, no
3: problem. So Westminster is America's oldest dog show that's still around today. And it is massive. Like, it's the only one that gets broadcast for two nights on TV. And it's actually the second oldest continuously held sporting competition in the U.S., It's been going on since 1877. Oh, wow.
4: That's remarkable. I actually didn't have any idea how old it was. I did know what the oldest continuous sporting event was. Do you happen to know what that is? No. What's that? It's the uh, Kentucky Derby. It's actually right around this time. I guess it's only probably a year or so before Westminster.
3: Yeah, that's right. But what's funny is that Westminster has been a hot ticket from the start. And apparently people have just always been crazy for dogs. There's this great book called Show Dog by Josh Dean. And he talks about the dogs at the first Westminster. And actually, let me read this quote just to show you you how excited people were about the first show. Among the top attractions of that debut show were two staghounds from a pack owned by the then-dead General George Custer, two deerhounds bred by Queen Victoria of England, reported to be worth $50,000 each and a two-legged dog said to be a veritable biped and possessing almost human intelligence.
4: <laughs> right. Of I course. know,
3: and, and it was the place to be. Like, a New York Times story reported that the gentlemen who served as ticket sellers could not make change fast enough to suit the impatience of the throng that was continually clamoring for admittance.
4: Wow. Now, I I do feel like we should be clear. Westminster wasn't America's first dog show. I mean, we, we just noted that it's the oldest one in the U.S. that still exists mm-hmm. today. There was one in Chicago before that, and then, of course, well before that, Crufts and Birmingham, England. And that had been going on since Victorian times. You know, and, in fact, that's probably why these dog shows are so, you know, pageanty. I guess. <laughs> it, it, it's kind of recreating that spirit, maybe. But what's funny to me is that dog shows aren't officially called dog shows. They're known as con <laughs> That's so weird.
3: And apparently when a dog makes it to the finals in a dog show, it's not actually competing against the other dogs for who's the most beautiful.
4: Yeah, that's right. It's actually something I didn't know before we were doing the research for this episode. So unlike a beauty pageant where people are competing against one another... Here, every dog is being judged against how well it conforms to their own AKC standards. So it isn't that this first place terrier is more beautiful than a Great Dane; it's that the terrier is closer to being a perfect ambassador of its breed, you might say, than than a Great Dane was. And so, you know, but it accentuates what dog shows are really about, and that's breeding, you know, or more specifically, it's all about creating the most perfect purebred possible. Which, you know, this is why winning is such a big deal, and the stud fees that come with winning are just outrageous.
3: Yeah, and of course there are health complications that come with breeding purebreds, as anyone with a cursory knowledge of the Habsburgs or any royal dynasty will
4: tell you. Yeah, and we'll get to some of that dark breeding stuff later, but you know what might be my favorite fact that I learned about Westminster this week? What's that? Well, so every year the winner and their dog, they get to eat a victory meal at Sardi's, you know, the, the legendary restaurant in New York. And there's this cute tradition, but, but as someone pointed out in 2012 – it also has this massive health code violation. You know, you'd have the Pekingese eating diced chicken at your table and lapping it off the fine china. And so (laughs) this was a real problem. And so the whole thing put Mayor Bloomberg and the city in a bind because, you know, he obviously wanted sanitary restaurants. So there was all this stress over what to do, and there was pressure from diners. And so finally he and the city health commissioner got together and they came up with this plan. So what they decided is that the winner of the Westminster... They also get a one-night exemption from the health commissioner to eat dinner out in New York City. <laughs> Isn't this crazy? I mean, it's such a strange and gaping loophole. But they managed to keep this tradition alive, at least for one purebred dog a year.
3: <laughs> well, I, I love that. It's so ridiculous. And speaking of food, there's this really fun article in The Washington Post by Karen Brullard called Things I Learned Covering Westminster. And there were a number of things in it that I hadn't realized or read anywhere else, like this makes sense to me now, but there are three different bathroom designations for the dogs. There, there's a grassy men's room dog area, a women's room for the female dogs to relieve themselves, and then there's one specifically for female dogs in heat. And at first, I was wondering, like, why have all these separate but equal bathrooms? Yeah, that's I mean, what I was going
4: to ask. That seems weird.
3: I know. I mean, they're just dogs, but but the reason is none of the male dogs are neutered, and so because this is all about breeding and breeding more purebreds and the stud fees, like you don't want a dog mounting another dog on a bathroom break.
0: Now,
4: before you started this story, you were saying this was related to food. How's this related <laughs> to food? Well, I'm getting there. But first, I've got another weird fact that I hadn't thought about. So Broulard also talks
3: about why male dogs dominate these dog shows. And while some breeders think it's because male dogs tend to be more beautiful, Broulard points out that this isn't exactly true and and that it actually comes back to breeding. So if your most beautiful female dogs are meant for breeding and you're making tons of money off the puppies, then they're probably going to be pregnant during the dog show season and unable to compete on the circuit that gets you there. So female dogs are at a disadvantage edge and can't really lean in, Hmm. but that food fact
4: yeah I was one, so so this is gonna be another breeding <laughs> fact I'm guessing
3: no but it is the funniest thing Brulard talks about in her piece to me at least and that's that dry cleaners seem to hate dog handlers because they're always stuffing meat into their pockets
4: <laughs> <laughs> that's a great <laughs> sentence
3: <laughs> like this one top handler was talking about how she makes all these uh, specialty treats for her dogs and and that they're extra garlicky and dried out and whatnot but she'll also just use hot dogs so at any moment she'll have a hot dog or two down her bro- Barach. Another great sentence. <laughs> but I mean this is like a known trick. And and uh she'll also have meat treats in her pockets and sometimes melted cheese and Ugh. and all that forgotten food like gets stinky and it's a hassle to deal with and it became such a hassle that she and her dry cleaner eventually had to break up because of it.
4: <laughs> I mean, I'm not quite sure how you forget that there's a hot dog in your bra. <laughs> or melted cheese. Either way, but that is a good fact. I'll give it to you. It took you a while to get to that one, but it that is good. And you know, it's interesting to learn that handlers are basically like jockeys i mean these these top dog owners are they're scouting and using the best handlers to get a competitive edge and you know they just want the judges to notice their dogs
3: yeah it, it's a totally fascinating job and the handler story i liked the most was about this poodle handler kaz hosaka who apparently lives in delaware which you know gives me extra pride right of course <laughs> but he's apparently the michelangelo of poodle grooming
4: I, I don't know anything about this person so what's his story
3: yeah. So it's crazy. As a teenager, he was showing a Doberman at a show in Japan. And this legendary judge who I'd never heard about, but her name's Ann Rogers Clark. She and her husband were there and, and they spotted him and noticed his talent. And they basically said, like, if you want to be a great handler, come with us to the U.S., So at 19 years old, Kaz, who spoke zero English and hadn't really traveled, like he just up and moved in with the Clarks and learned the art of the poodle. And now he's undeniably the best poodle groomer and handler in the world. But what makes him so great... Isn't that he's won so much or or that he's a perfectionist? Like, and he is a perfectionist. Like, he brushes each of his 20 poodles every night, which can take anywhere from five minutes to half an hour per dog. Gosh! Plus, he crumps their hair as he does it. But what makes him so great is that he's insanely humble. Like, here's a quote from Josh Dean. 30 years later, Cause is unequivocally the top poodle groomer and handler in America. How long did it take him to become good? Still I am no good, he said. You're the best there is, aren't you? People think so, but I don't think. I think learning never ends, he said, especially with poodles.
4: Wow. Well, I mean, I I do know that a good handler can certainly put a bigger spotlight on your dog just in reading up about this. And they're also good at scouting the judges and... Masking certain defects. And so, you know, they'll use different leash tricks to compensate for a dog's wonky gait or, you know, they'll exhibit dogs from certain angles just to try to get that advantage. Uh,
3: well, what's that mean, like certain angles?
4: Well, th- there's something called side-wheeling, where you bring the dog in from an oblique angle so that the judge won't see like a minor defect in, in the dog. And there, hmm. there are all kinds of tricks like this. But, you know, with so much money and pride on the line, some dog owners will choose to go beyond just hiring a great handler and they veer to the dark side and they'll actually play dirty believe it or not <laughs> but before we get into the juicy evil side of dog shows why don't we take a quick break for a quiz
2: Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at HomeDepot.com.
4: So our guest today is an award-winning photographer and an animal activist who first caught our eye with this incredible series. This is the one where she took flower crowns and put them on pit bulls you know, to help them get adopted. It was just a, a beautiful series, still does these today. She's done a ton of other wonderful work, and we'll talk to her about that. But Sophie Gamon, welcome to Part-Time Genius.
1: Hi, thank you for having me.
4: <laughs> well, in today's show, we're talking about dog shows for most of the show. But, you know, we're fascinated by this variation on this, the doggy pageant scene. And I, I just, it was funny, we were talking to you before you came in today, a little bit about how you got into shooting these doggy pageants and then the pit bulls and, so tell us a little bit about how you did get into this to begin with.
1: When I actually first moved to New York from Europe, mm-hmm. um, I kind of left my job, my family, my friends, everything behind. I just brought a husband with me. Right. <laughs> which was helpful. Nice of you to bring in. Yeah. <laughs> I guess technically he brought me. But uh, so I arrived here and I had nobody, nothing to do. And I it was a way for me to reinvent myself, which was fantastic. But I only had a camera. And that kind of became my way in. And very quickly, I I realized I was more drawn to photographing dogs Mm -hmm. than people. Mm -hmm. So I was like, oh, I'm just going to do a project on dogs. And it really snowballed from there. That was almost like seven years ago. And now I'm a full time dog artist slash activist and all the good stuff that comes with.
4: Wow, that's great.
3: Today's show is really about dog shows, but we're fascinated by this variation you covered, the, the doggy pageant. And so as an outsider, it looks a little like a dog show meets toddlers and tiaras. <laughs> yes. And so can you tell us a little about dog pageants?
1: Yeah, so I came across that group of people in New York um, that have mostly like chihuahuas or small breed dogs that they mm-hmm. carry around in their purses and they dress them up. I was looking for people who looked like their dogs and, and then I bumped into that scene and I was like, holy moly, I have to do something. <laughs> so I guess my first contact with that scene was, this is kind of crazy and pathetic. It's going to make great photos. Let's right. go for it. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, you know, I started meeting these people and seeing their routine and, and the relationship they had with their dogs. And as a photographer, you know, you try not to judge. You go in as a witness and you want right. to document. So I was trying really hard to do that. So there's a, this very active group. Um, they're trying to raise money for rescues through all these events. And which is, is great. Which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, but mostly it's about, you know, kind of spotlight and being on the catwalk with your dog. And so I always say, you know, it's like really the child pageant. You mm-hmm. think it's about the kids, but it's really about the moms. Let's be honest. Right,
4: right. So a
1: lot of it was just, you know, single ladies in their 40s, 50s, 60s that have this amazing, intense relationship with their dog. The dog is really like a spouse at that point. It's right. insane the relationship they have. And and so they go through these fashion shows and the pageants where you know they work on their skills together and outfits, matching outfits. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a crazy subculture that that um really fascinated me.
3: Is it hard to photograph dogs in clothing?
1: No, I actually have a series that I call Dog Vogue and I, I worked with a, a local pet couturier mm-hmm. um who basically created these amazing outfits for these Chihuahuas. In that scene, I mean, some of these people buy outfits that are worth like a $1,000 covered in Swarovski's crystals. Like those outfits are sometimes works of art, like really. So it was actually really interesting for me to photograph that fashion aspect of it. Um, Some dogs loved the attention. Some dogs were miserable, (laughs) let's be honest. But most of them, actually, it's part of their routine. You know, when my work came out about the pageant, I got a little bit of hate mail sometimes or hateful comments on social media and mostly people were like, how dare you? It is so unnatural to dress up dogs and all that. And my answer is always like, oh, because you think it's natural for dogs to like sniff for bombs at the airport right. or guide the blind?
4: Right.
3: Of
1: course not. Right. You know, dogs, it's just what they do. It's what they're taught to do, what whatever, whatever it is. To, yeah. Exactly. You know, we created dogs a certain way. We created mm-hmm. breeds, shapes, sizes, skills. We invented all this from right. maybe the wolf. Maybe, we. you know, it's very unclear the, exact origin but through artificial artificial selection we completely manufactured engineered this animal slash companion mm-hmm, right. they love the reward they love the attention they want to make us happy and that's how it's been for million so yeah. why not?
4: yeah and you talk about that a little bit on your website I thought, I thought that was really interesting basically saying we are the reason that dogs are around right we've created this and so because of that we now have a responsibility as humans to to care for these. And Absolutely. so thinking a little bit about your work, you know, with the pit bulls and the rescue animals, um, talk a little bit about that and what you've seen happening in the rescue world.
1: I think if I try to look back at it a little bit, I would say, for years, you know, we we displayed shelter dogs as these miserable, sad, filthy, sick creatures that needed to be saved. Right. We've all seen those commercials on TV. Yeah. <laughs> the sad song and I'm
4: crying just thinking about it. I months. know,
1: right? <laughs> yeah. I think it served a purpose for a long time, but now there's a new generation that I I've, I've been trying to lead a little bit of uh, photographers and artists and advocates that try to present a more positive image of shelter dogs to say Look at this amazing face, this personality. Like, don't you want to live with this for the rest of your life? What's difficult when it comes to Pitbull is that although there is a breed called the American Pitbull Terrier, Mm -hmm. when you refer, when the public refers to pit bulls, they mean a group of dogs. That is a mix of breeds, different kind of breeds, mixed breeds, and also just any dog that kind of looks like that. Mm -hmm. So has a blocky head or a big smile. In most shelters, even the shelter staff don't know how to identify these dogs. Yeah. So now we have this, I call it the mythological creature, really, which right. is the pit
4: bull. Right, right.
1: You know, hide your children. <laughs> but we can't even define what a pit bull is, really. Yeah, yeah. And then we build laws, bans, you know, and and all sorts of laws that prevent you from having them in your apartment or in mm-hmm. your city or whatever um, around this concept of this Dog that is right. going to eat you alive. So right. it is so layered and super complicated. Like I, if you have specific questions, I'm more than happy to talk about <laughs> it. But this is a there's a lot to talk about when it comes to pit bulls.
4: Yeah, yeah, and an, an important discussion. Um, almost- oh, yeah. Almost as important as I think this quiz that we've written for you today, Sophie. Uh-oh. Don't you think, Mango? Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, let's put her to the test. What's our quiz called today?
3: So, Sophie's going to play a game called Dog Breed or Regional Delicacy.
4: All right. So, it's Yoo-hoo. as simple as that. We'll read you a name and you tell us whether this is a dog breed or a regional delicacy.
1: Ugh, I'm sweating.
4: Okay. Here okay. we go. <laughs> All right. Number 1. Borzoi. Dog. Wow, she got it quickly. Is that right, Mango? Yeah, it's a dog breed developed in Russia as a hunting and coursing dog. Okay, you are one for one. All right, the next one, Runza.
1: Uh, has to be some food or something.
3: <laughs> it's definitely a food or something. Uh, these uh, Midwest favorites are pockets of dough filled with meat, veggies, and spices. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, you two sounded for two. really
4: excited about that. All right, number three, Kishond.
1: Oh wow! Oh. I food.
4: <laughs> mm, yeah, well, you yeah, you obviously haven't shot a KeeShawn before, I don't think, right? These are dogs, aren't they, Mango? Yeah, they're super fluffy dogs related to the
3: Pomeranian. Well, oh,
1: hold on, how do you spell that?
3: K e e s h o n d.
1: Wow. Yeah. All right.
4: Don't make me say
3: it. In I French. don't do
1: breeds. That's probably okay. why I don't okay. know. Okay. These- <laughs> right.
4: Next one. A youper youper Mm-hmm. Ooh, food. Well done.
3: Nice, yeah, it's a, also sometimes called a pasty. These, uh, meaty turnovers are a favorite in the Upper Peninsula.
4: Oh, really? <laughs> Can we not use pasties and meat turnovers in the same, same <laughs> sentence anymore?
1: I, I got slightly uncomfortable here.
4: Alright, the last one. Here we go. <laughs> a ham dog.
1: Oh, man. I mean. I imagine it's some kind of food, but I know people who call their dog like this, so now
4: I'm very confused. <laughs> Actually, we had a friend with a dog named Hamburger, didn't we? But no, you're yeah. right. It's a, it is a food, right, Mango?
3: Yeah, the, the ham dog is invented by Chandler Goff is a deep-fried hot dog in a hamburger bun topped with an egg and f- served with fries. Wow, that sounds... See,
1: I try to be vegetarian, so I wouldn't know any of these anyway.
4: <laughs> Not a meaty pasty? <laughs> Whatever. Those are nice. All hard. right, well, how has Sophie done today, Mango? <laughs> well, Sophie's
3: got an astounding four for five, which earns her her top prize, uh, a note to her mom singing her praises. Wow congratulations. Oh, I hope you can do it
1: in French because <laughs> otherwise she's gonna be like, I don't understand.
4: We'll try. we'll We'll give it a shot. But I hope all of our listeners will check out uh, Sophie's Instagram page and we will link to it uh, in the information below this podcast. So thanks awesome. so much for joining us, Sophie.
1: Thank you. It was super fun. Thank you.
4: Welcome back to Part-Time Genius. Now, Mango, I know we were both delighted to find out that there's some dirty stuff that goes on (laughs) as far as the competition, so why don't we talk about that? Yeah,
3: you know, I always think it's fun to read about the scandalous dark side of events, and especially one that feels so wholesome.
4: Yeah, well, why don't we go back and forth with some of our favorite underhanded things, and and I'll start it off if that works for you. All right, apparently it's pretty common for a petty owner to hide a pair of scissors on them, and what they'll do is they'll just snip a patch of hair off a competitor's dog as they walk by. (laughs) Yeah, you know, for my reading, this is actually a somewhat common tactic. That's so psycho. And, and you know, you know what sniffing,
3: uh, fur reminds me of? Like, how that classical composer Franz Liszt was such a rock star that his fans would write him asking for locks of his hair. And he got so fed up that he finally bought a dog with similar colored hair and just started mailing his fans curls from his dog's hair instead of
4: his own. Yeah, you've always got a Franz Liszt quote. <laughs> up my Fact sleep. ready. Good job.
3: But, uh, where, where were we? Um, Oh, yeah. The the, the worst thing I read was that some owners slip other dogs chocolate before an event.
4: It's just because chocolate's bad for dogs or something?
3: I, I mean, it is in the long run, but chocolate can also cause a dog's mouth to become all filmy inside. And since a judge looks at the teeth pretty closely, it can actually throw off your score.
4: Oh, wow. Actually, I read something that may be even more disturbing about that is that sometimes dogs get roofied by competitors. <laughs>
3: roofied? Like, I, yeah. I, I'd heard about, like, people slipping them laxatives, but yeah. not roofies.
4: Yeah, and it's it's not enough to make them fall asleep, but enough that they aren't sharp in the ring. And it's totally crazy what these people are doing. Oh, uh, so it's honestly gross. And,
3: of course, there are other tactics that aren't as slimy as any of these, but but also don't feel exactly ethical. Like, there are reports of dogs that have plastic surgery to enhance their assets. <laughs> and there are uh, funny, ridiculous things. Like, uh, there are reports from judges who claim that some dogs use so much hairspray that they can't get their hand through the coat. And, actually, this this old article from the New York Times Week in Review. This is from 1994. And it's all about the dog show enhancing, and and it's so great. Here, let me read this quote to you. As surely as there are pitchers skilled in the use of hair oil or tobacco juice to alter a baseball's flight, there are dog handlers unwilling to be slaves to the rules. As a younger judge at a smaller show, Mr. Goodman recalled... He would admire the rich coppery tones in the coats of Airedales and Welsh Terriers. Sometimes his hands would be red afterwards. <laughs> Can you imagine petting a dog in your hand coming out all red? <laughs> like, wow. And there's a great story in there, too, about how one poodle looked like she, she was like beautiful and naturally fluffy. But when an admiring judge got closer, the poodle shook and this thick cloud of powder
4: floated off and floated towards the judge's clothing. <laughs> oh, gosh yeah but I, I did see I mean one thing that kept coming up and reading about this is that it's really hard to fool a skilled judge. I mean some of those powder and paint tricks might get you through the lower rounds, but it's definitely not enough to win for you at you know at Westminster.
3: No, I, I definitely agree with that, but like we mentioned before, a good handler does know who the judges are going to be and and they'll try to show to their interests um. You know, speaking of which, there, there's some great nicknaming for judges with certain preferences. Like what? It's it's like jargon in the industry. But like a judge who obsesses over perfect teeth is called a tooth fairy. <laughs> and one who gives preference to the dog's head over the body,
4: they're called headhunters. Huh. All right. So, so maybe you can take those things into consideration as you're showing a dog. But you know, there's one definite way to sway a judge that isn't talked about that much. And, and honestly, that's advertising. And I really didn't have any idea about this, but... Just like they do for movies with all those, you know, for your consideration ads.
3: Yeah, and which is funny because Best
4: in Show and For Your Consideration are both Christopher Guest movies. That is true. Good good point. But you know, but the dog show world has the exact same kind of thing going on, and there there are a few dog magazines that go out free to every AKC judge as they get their certification and you know, some of these owners, they'll pay $30,000 per dog to get their puppies glam shots and names highlighted in the magazines. It's, it's really crazy and it's a big business.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's an insane amount of money, but, but judges often claim that they don't read those magazines, right? And uh, I mean, like, I've read the titles. They're like the Canine Chronicle.
4: Yeah, but you know, there, there are three or four of these magazines out there and they'd be all out of business if people didn't think they worked. And there was this interview with the Daily Beast and Bob Wheeler was interviewed and he said, I can't think of any top 10 dog in the last 10 years that didn't do some advertising. You know, and the whole notion is you can't put a mediocre dog in there and buy enough ad space to win. But if you have a real contender and you can build this campaign around them and, you know, if you're lucky enough to put a judge in your photo with your dog who also happens to be at Westminster, supposedly the flattery has worked. So let's recap a little. We know that if you want to game a dog show, you need a great handler.
3: A lot of advertising, perhaps a little hot dog in your pants or bra, and then, right. uh, of course, you'll need a purebred, but let's talk about that. So initially when I was thinking about this, I I was wondering if there was a way to game a dog show where you could pick a super obscure breed and just like work your way in through a side door and kind of like those mediocre American athletes who will buy their way into the Olympics in like a different
4: country. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't find a lot about this and I'm guessing you could win some local competitions and maybe get into Westminster if the breed is really obscure and uncompetitive. But, you know, the show takes into account how many dogs you're beating to get there And one intangible that judges and dog handlers seem to keep talking about is a dog's charisma. And so judges want dogs with great temperaments and great charisma. And, you know, you're not going to win with an introvert. That is sad. You know, there's certainly breeds that dominate the competition. So if you're really looking to win and and, and you had the money for it, you'd probably want to go with a thoroughbred line of a known favorite breed, you know, rather than trying to win with an outsider dog. Even if the competition will be pretty stiff to get to Westminster.
3: So give me an example
4: well, for decades, Terriers were the dog, and you, you couldn't get around them. And, and that's partially because they're bred to be fearless. So they'll strut around and bounce and take it all in stride. But they've kind of lost steam over the years. And today, you know, Yorkies are really the only Terriers that have been winning.
3: Well, there has been a move to, like, toy dogs, right?
4: Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, more tiny dogs have won recently, but there hasn't been a clear trend that Vegas or people creating the odds on Westminster have really identified at this point.
3: Well, I I don't want to dwell on this, but we should probably talk just a little bit about why dog shows and creating purebred dogs can be problematic. You you know, when I read about some of the problems that these dogs have, I I was just horrified. Like, English bulldogs obviously have it the worst. Not only does their big head make it hard to breathe, and and their bulging eyes are so poorly connected to their sockets, but the dogs sink in water. And they can't actually breathe themselves. Like, they have to be artificially inseminated. And they can't give birth, so they have to be delivered by C-sections. Like, we're basically keeping the species alive because they're cute. Yeah. And, I mean, they are cute. There was a time when I wanted to get a big, fat bulldog and name him Paddington. <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, you know, it, it isn't just bulldogs. I mean, Cavalier King Charles Spaniels have skulls that are too small for their brains. Oh. And there's a lot of this that's pretty horrifying and there are lots of problems. And, you know, even when breeders are trying to avoid cruelty and build dogs with better temperaments, like, you know, tail cutting is something that you can't do for dog shows anymore. So breeders quickly bred dogs with tiny tails. And that's something you can do in just two or three generations. But as you do that and crown a most beautiful dog that has this short genetically engineered tail, you also don't know what other genetic traits you're accidentally introducing.
3: Well, the one thing that does seem positive on this front is that much like there's the human genome project, there's actually a dog genome project that's located and mapped out all the canine genes, like both good and bad. And and with a simple blood test, you can actually figure out whether or not your dog is a carrier for certain traits, and hopefully that'll lead to healthier dogs in the future. But speaking of purebreds, I do want to talk a little about the dog breeds that haven't made the cut to get into Westminster.
4: Do you want to give a few examples of those?
3: Yeah, so there are about 60 or so breeds that are just on the waiting list. Basically, to make the cut, you have to show that your breeding club has over a 100 members. And there needs to be like over 300 of this dog in the U.S. Then there has to be a breed standard that they're all measuring up to or trying to measure up to. And the dogs have to have this pedigree of three generations minimum. Also, like, these dogs can't all be from one region. They've got to be scattered. And once all that's figured out, like, then you can compete in the miscellaneous category, which feels a little like dog purgatory. (laughs) I mean, there's some sort of political process that gets you off the wait list. And it's kind of murky, as I understand it. Like, the Tibetan Mastiff got out of the miscellaneous category in just two years. But the Cavalier King Charles... They actually spent 30 years there, and uh, and and some of it's from the breeders and the club themselves. Like some clubs don't care a hoot if they're recognized. The Redbone Coonhound is one of these examples. They're really more of an agility and performance dog, so they're not interested in showing for conforming, and uh, and they've been happy with their designation. And I think part of the reason the Cavalier Club like they didn't want their pups on the list was because breeders didn't want the dog to get too popular, but the AKC recognized them anyway. And the club was supposedly
4: furious when it happened. I mean, I have to admit these politics are kind of funny (laughs) when it comes to all of this. All right. Well, I think we've talked about dog shows and how to win a show. But I definitely want to talk about some of the non-dog shows we found. So I'd love to read off a few of my favorites. and, And you let me know if I missed any great ones. Well, I, I do think before we move to non-dog shows, you've got to talk about a few
3: other dog shows. Okay. And, and so I've got the the World's Ugliest Dog Show, which <laughs> often features dogs only an owner could love. Right, Like, these are the sweet temperament dogs with really bad haircuts, and, and their tongues are sticking out, and, and they often look kind of like they're modeled after the drawings of preschoolers.
4: <laughs> you know, you definitely don't need to be a purebred to be in or just, just really loved, I guess. But all right, well, here are a few others. So there's a uh, camel festival. It takes place over 20 Twenty-eight days, which is pretty crazy. You definitely don't want to miss that one. There's a rabbit show jumping competition that's known as the Canning Hopning in Sweden. I'm sure I said that incorrectly. Where the world's most adorable bunnies are trained to hop high, far, and fast. And then, of course, there's the cricket fighting UFC-style contest in Beijing, which I, I wouldn't even mention except that the crickets, which have lifespans of 100 days or so, they go for $1,500 an insect. That's crazy. And how, how do you know if you've got a good Cricket on your hands. Well, apparently, if you poke it and it chirps louder, you've got a winner.
3: <laughs> well, uh, there's there's also an annual tarantula exhibition, which I want no part of. But but where the animals are judged on their coats and shine and. Also, their demeanor.
4: <laughs> I I kind of like this idea of judging a tarantula's demeanor. <laughs> it's so weird.
3: Yeah, I'm I'm also curious, like how much a stud tarantula goes for. <laughs> and and you know, you you did forget my favorite, which is the chicken strutting contest in Malaysia, where mm-hmm. where all these beautiful fowls strut and march around with their chests out.
4: Not to worry about this. I was saving the chicken strutting <laughs> for last. The photos from this are unbelievable. I mean, they're like these little comical drum majors, and the winners go for ten thousand dollars a bird i think my favorite part though is the cheering for them so i was reading this very sweet quote from one owner who was yelling over this big crowd yes my hero puff out your chest (laughs) i mean just reading that (laughs) quote made me happy it's pretty great but you know we can't
3: spend this whole episode on dogs talking about chickens so you know what time it is
4: time for the ptg fact off and i've got just the fact to kick this off So the first dog show on record goes back to June 28th, 1859. That's when 60 hunting dogs, only pointers and setters, competed for best in show. And it wasn't that they were trying to keep other dogs out. It's just that's the only dog they had at the time. (laughs) But the interesting part is because these were hunting dogs instead of trophies, winners were giving guns instead. (laughs) I'm surprised no one's brought that back. Like, I'm sure
3: the NRA would love to sponsor more dog shows. And
4: Noodles definitely needs a gun.
3: (laughs) (laughs) So here's one about Westminster that I didn't realize. Did you know that since the tournament's conception, they've been giving a percent of their profits to the ASPCA? And in fact, there's also a portion of the profits that goes to scholarships for veterinary students.
4: Wow. I, I didn't realize that New York City gets so into this action. All right, well, in addition to the Sardi's meal and the show taking over Madison Square Garden, the Empire State Building is lit up for the event in purple and yellow, the show's official colors. And Lakers colors. That's right. <laughs> Do you know that dog grooming parlors have been a thing since
3: 18th century France? Apparently, it all started when the poodle was named the official dog of King Louis
4: XV's court. Hmm. Well, that makes sense to me, though. All right, all right, here's one I love. Did you know that Ren Ten Ten was actually supposed to win the first Oscar for Best Actor? He starred in a number of box office hits and was the clear favorite. But according to author Susan Orlean, the Academy wanted to be perceived as more serious. So they took Wren out of the running and did another vote, which is how Emil Jennings ended up with the hardware.
3: <laughs> well, it's a sad, sad day in dog history. Uh, although I do love a good Emil Jennings blockbuster.
4: I know you do. Uh,
3: anyway, I, I do love that fact. And just like Wren Tin, Tin, you deserve this week's trophy. But before we go, I want to thank Nolan Brown for his excellent research this week. And for all you listeners out there, thank you so much for tuning in.
4: Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing.
3: <laughs> Jerry Rowland does the exact producer thing.